part of, you know, when we feel like we did the worst thing ever, we're really coming down hard on ourselves is to learn that, you know, we're sometimes our own worst critic. And while we think what we're going through right now is really, really bad, uh, in the end, it's really not a big deal. It's just a process that we have to work through. Welcome to the Triple P Podcast, premier, professional, and proactive, brought to you by the Ohio Fire Chiefs Association. I'm your host, Clayton O'Brien, and I'm the fire chief from the city of Napoleon, and I'm an active member of the association. I currently sit on the executive board for the Ohio Fire Chiefs Foundation, and I became an association fellow in 2021 as part of class number 10. The Ohio Fire Chiefs Association exists to improve the safety of Ohio by leading, representing, educating, and supporting Ohio emergency services. This podcast is not only for the members of the association, but also for any other fire and emergency service leaders. It is the purpose of the association to promote education, best practices, and study ways and means to cope with the ever-increasing need for a better understanding of the complex problems which are being presented to the fire protection and emergency services of our nation today. I'm joined by my co-host and my assistant chief, Joel Fry. Thanks, Clayton. Hello, I'm Joel Fry, Assistant Fire Chief for Napoleon Fire and Rescue. I am a current member of the OFCA, and I currently sit on the Education Committee. I am happy to be here, striving to advance the fire service as a whole. Welcome to episode number five of the Triple P podcast. I know this is pretty exciting for us, for Joel and I, as uh, we've been through four of these different episodes. We've talked about many different things on the podcast, including the benefits of the membership and what kind of committees are out there. Uh, speaking to the uh, president, Chief Mark Kidd, uh, the previous president, and had all these different things about what the benefits are. But one of the other benefits, uh, things that we really wanted to bring to this podcast was an educational piece, things that could really impact the line officers, new fire chiefs, the normal firefighter that's working through their career. And and I know that this year at the conference, just a whole outline of a lot of different classes. And Joel, you attended a class this year by Chief Steve Eggenbrode. So tell us a little bit about that class, because that's who we have on today. Yeah, so at the conference, I uh, walked into Chief Steve Engelbrode's class, and I didn't really know what to expect. It was about criticism and how a officer can take criticism. And then I learned more that it was about criticism and who these people are, what they're going to kind of their mentality is, and how to handle them. So I got a lot out of Steve's class, and I really appreciated his time there. I did really enjoy the class. I thought it would be a great start to our training podcast. So. I actually didn't get to attend your class because when Joel and I are down there, we're trying to tag team different classes, as I'm sure a bunch of other chiefs and assistant chiefs are, to get the most out of their time. Uh, But you came out of there really charged up, really excited. So uh, we really look forward today to talking to you, Chief, all about uh, the class that you presented at the conference. And so what I want to do is I just want to start off having you give us a little introduction from where you're from, when you became a fire chief, and then just tell us about the class just a little bit and then we'll get into it. Sure. Yeah. My name is Steve Agenbrod. I'm the chief of the Clear Creek Fire District. It's in southwest Ohio located between Dayton and Cincinnati right off of I-75. And I became chief, uh, interim chief in the middle of 2016 and then took on the role uh, in January of 2017. We are a suburban department 
and we went all full time the the day that I became chief. One of my first things to work on was converting the department from a combination part time full time to an all career department. That was my first assignment as an interim chief. And then once I got sworn in, we swore in our last three part time members as full time members, and we've been an all career department ever since. Wow. So you got right to work. That was a pretty big assignment. Just even starting out as an interim fire chief. Yeah, it was, it was a lot, but uh, it's been great. We actually taught another class, uh, Chief Paul Wright from Montgomery and I taught a class at the conference this summer on how to convert a part-time department to a career department. Well, Chief, the Officer's Guide to Managing Criticism is the title of your class that you presented at the conference. And tell us, you know, why did you create this class and, you know, what made you put uh, the pen to paper to actually say, hey, I think there could be a lot of other firefighters, middle managers, officers, captains, lieutenants, and even other cohorts as far as fire chiefs and assistant chiefs that could really benefit from this class. So how'd you go about that? Sure. So there really, there's three reasons why I, I created this class. The first one's personal. Uh, I've struggled with with being criticized uh, throughout my career. You know, when you're very passionate about a job and you you put a lot of time, effort, and energy into it, you know, sometimes you let yourself take it personally, which I've learned you shouldn't do. That's uh, one of the things I've learned. But while I realize that held me back sometimes, it caused me to respond uh, emotionally and inappropriately. And I found it to not be necessarily the best way to respond to things. And so I knew that I had a deficiency in that area I needed to work on. The other thing I found is that I wasn't alone. I had a lot of conversations with other chiefs and other fire officers, you know, come to find out that they were managing some of the same demons, if you will, that I was on how to actually handle criticism, whether it be constructive or not. And then the last reason, and I've really found this more since I have become the chief, is there are a lot of people out there who have a lot of skills and abilities that could be great fire officers or even just better at what they are if they would just be willing to to put themselves out there. But I find with the fire service, you know, we are so influenced by our peers. You know, we talk a lot about the brotherhood and the sisterhood, and and that really means a lot to the people that do this job, uh, myself included. But when you put yourself out there and you subject yourself to criticism, uh, sometimes that can cut both ways, if you will. So I've had a lot of conversations with people who could be good fire officers or good leaders, but were scared to put themselves out there to do so. So that kind of forced me to dive into the research and look into, you know, what is it that causes us to do that? Yeah, I think that's why I probably took a lot out of your class because, you know, I do feel like I'm the best at everything, and when you do get criticized, it does hurt. I think that you highlighting all these different aspects of criticism and how to take it really helped me come out of that class very rewarded. Well, in the fire service, I mean, we say it all the time, right, that all of us are type A personalities, very strong, opinionated, and we'll let people know. But then when you're on the other end of, you know, trying to do something or put yourself out there, it may not be as easy to take that because um, in order for us to do very well at our jobs, a lot of times that's what it takes. It takes a strong minded individual that's a type A personality to be able to do good, but also can affect ways in others. Yeah, agreed. And to kind of add on to the type A comment, it does kind of come, you know, almost hand in glove, if you will, that a lot of people that have very strong willed type A personalities sometimes allow their egos to grow quite large. And that's what I found I struggled with for a long time. And uh, you know, Chief Alan Brunicini says egos eat brains. 
And and I found that to be the case. You know, when you start letting yourself get a little bit too big for your britches, you know, be, being humbled uh, can be some of the best things that can happen to you as you progress through your career. I agree. So now do you want to start into part one, the introduction to criticism? Sure. Yeah. So the first thing I ask the group when we get together in class is I just ask everyone to think about a time they've been criticized and not necessarily in a constructive manner. But, you know, you're working on a project, you want to do something, you have, you know, you have a lot of passion for what you're trying to do. And and like you said a minute ago, Joel, you feel like you're the best at what you're doing and you've got this great plan and you know everything about this. And then you present it to the department or you come in and you drop this idea on somebody's desk and and they just shoot it down or they, they want to, you know, shoot holes into your your great plan that you you know you've developed and and that's hard to do because in your mind you're thinking man this is a great idea and and a lot of times i found in the, the fire service is we present these what we believe to be these great ideas and then people just start shooting holes in them you know and a lot of times we don't agree with what it is and we don't really necessarily know how to respond so i i found that as a, a reason why people don't want to present new ideas or put themselves out there so w one of the things you know that i that i talk about with is is why physiologically do we do this or psychologically do we do this and and so some of the research that i that i did was i looked into what is it that causes us to not want to put ourselves out there and what i found is you know while it's 2022 and there's never been a safer time to, to live that we still have a lot of the same dna and genetics in our body that we had when we were cave people if you will you know and there's a lot of uh, reactions and instincts that we have internally that fight or flight mechanism that causes us to do certain things and and those were great back in the caveman days when you know you could run into a saber-toothed tiger that might kill you well, the likelihood of running into one of those at the firehouse is pretty slim, but we still have those physiological reactions to things, one of those uh, being criticism. So just knowing that that's part of, you know, when we feel like we did the worst thing ever, or we're really coming down hard on ourselves is to learn that, you know, we're sometimes our own worst critic. And while we think what we're going through right now is really, really bad, uh, in the end, it's really not a big deal. It's just a process that we have to work through. And then some other research that I looked into that I found was pretty interesting back to the cave people days, if you will, is we were part of a tribe back in the day. And I read a book by Sebastian Younger and it was called Tribe. And he outlines in that book a lot about we all relied on each other to survive. And if, if you were an outcast in your tribe and you were, you know, you were thrown out, then it, it could ultimately lead to your death. So, you know, we have some of those physiological responses that tell us don't put yourself out there or don't take those risks because you may be you know chastised you may be thrown out of the tribe and you may end up dying so that's kind of the internal struggle we're dealing with while psychologically we know that's just dumb and that's not true and that's not what is going to happen to us but internally that's the struggle that's going on and and once i kind of learned um, that was what was going on internally that helped me realize okay you know don't overreact you know, think about what's the worst case scenario that could occur with what's going on. And the example that I use in the classes I talk about, I'm up in front of everybody giving a speech right now in front of a, a large group of people in a classroom. And what's the worst thing that could happen? Well, I could look dumb and people in the room would think I'm dumb, but no big deal. I've looked dumb before and people have thought I'm dumb before and, and they will continue to do so uh, as we go forward. But I throw up a little slide that says that public speaking is one of the greatest fears that people have, and that's even above drowning. And 
looking at worst case, best case, some people are more afraid to get in front of a group of people where the worst thing that could happen is they look dumb versus drowning, which worst case is did you die? So I felt that that was kind of uh, an interesting perspective to take when looking at dealing with criticism. Yeah, I want to highlight on this chart, too, that you have here. Public speaking outweighs clowns. So you always hear people scared of clowns. Yeah, that's amazing. When I seen your chart, I was reviewing this, and I seen that chart, and I seen public speaking at the top. I I uh, was even set back myself a little bit because I think that we can all find ourselves easy around the kitchen table to have these conversations and to talk to whoever. Uh, but then when you do get up into the public or some of the individuals that you may not know, something just takes us over, you know, a little bit of this nerve, this little lump in our stomach to, um, that you're so impacted because you want to do so well that you just, like you said, the worst case that could happen is that you're going to look dumb, but really, if you get up there, just kind of like being so comfortable and talk about the whole reason why you're up there in the first place, because you wouldn't be up there if you didn't have great information, then I think it would kind of take away that anxiety of, you know, being up in front of individuals for public speaking. You use an example, though. You do ask the class at one point for criticism, you know, thinking about a time, the last time that you were ever criticized in non-constructive manner. Can you elaborate that on just a little bit of maybe did you have a personal experience where you were criticized as a young chief officer or young officer by a peer or by a subordinate of it was non constructive and and why that sticks out in your mind so much to be able to put this in that class well i i think anybody that is a leader has been criticized and and we all know how that feels so the the reason for that slide is simply so that the students can kind of put themselves in that position to think oh yeah i think about a time when i felt criticized and this is how it made me feel which allowed them to kind of go on this journey of this class uh, with me so they could actually, you know, feel what it is that we're going to talk about and not just hear what it is that I'm saying. But as far as to answer your question about uh, being criticized myself is, you know, um, how much time do you have? You know, spent 28 years in the fire service, a lot of that as a fire officer. So uh, you, you do get criticized a whole lot. We could talk about different, you know, specific scenarios. I can't think of one in particular that stands out, but I, I think What's important, and you mentioned just a minute ago, and, and it made me think of a conversation I had at the kitchen table at the station over coffee. Uh, we were talking to some people who are, are wanting to promote, and they were asking me for if you could give one piece of advice to a new fire officer, uh, specifically someone that wanted to promote even up to a chief officer, what would that be? And, and I thought about it for a while, and what I came up with was I think the most important thing that you need to do is just to learn to be comfortable being uncomfortable. And that goes along with the public speaking part is, you know, when you're a, a firefighter paramedic or a company officer, a lot of what you do specifically under stress, uh, you've been highly trained to handle. You know, you go through a lot of paramedic training, a lot of firefighter training, fire officer one, you know, you're making decisions on those emergency grounds. It's the exciting stuff that we get into this line of work for. And, and we think about it a lot. And there's a lot of training that goes into that. But as you move up into a chief officer role, uh, you just encounter a lot of things that you've just never encountered before and you don't know what to do and you become very uncomfortable. And I think the thing that I see are the ones who can just maintain a calm demeanor and maintain a calm head. And while they're made in, inside, they're shaking, you know, they're nervous, but on the outside, you would never guess it. And, and they're able to maintain that that at least outward looking of being comfortable 
when maybe inside they're extremely uncomfortable. I think that's great advice, you know, to feel comfortable, uncomfortable. And the reason why I say that is because then everything that was so comfortable when we were on the line on a regular basis, then becomes uncomfortable for a period of time, even as chiefs. And that's where like, for, for example, uh, where I would say Joel and I get into these situations a little bit more on a regular basis because of staffing and the amount of times that we're on the ambulance anymore. When we were on the line, we're on the ambulance all the time, handling all these EMS calls where now it's few and far between that we're actually on those calls, but we have to take those calls. And so we, at one point we're comfortable. Now we're a little bit more uncomfortable, but we come back and we talk over protocols or we talk it over with the, the crews. And one of the biggest things that we've kind of, you know, said in our firehouse is that you can have constructive criticism for anybody um, as long as the message is delivered in a respectful manner. Because I think that's the biggest thing. I think that a lot of times when, when you're being criticized, if somebody is respectfully telling you where you truly believe that they're genuinely wanting you to do better, that's why they're telling you that you're not missing the mark there, I think makes a big difference than just the individual that's doing it behind your back that you never knew about it until you found out three days later. And then you you know realize that criticism was not for you to grow. It was just to, to bring you down a notch. Absolutely. Steve Eggenbrode is an experienced emergency service executive with a demonstrated history of working in the public safety industry. He commands an all hazards emergency services organization and also works as a full-time professor for the Columbia Southern University. He has practice experienced in areas of fire, rescue services, emergency medical services, law enforcement, and investigations with a primary focus in operations, management, and administration with a strong passion for leadership. Chief Eggenbrode serves as the president of the Warren County Fire Chiefs Association, president of the Southwestern Ohio Fire Chiefs Association, and chairs the legislative committee for the Ohio Fire Chiefs Association. Personally, Steve enjoys living an active lifestyle and by exercising and being outdoors. He loves to golf, but is terrible at it. He and his amazing wife reside in Springboro with their two daughters and three dogs. He is also an active member of the Rotary Club of Springboro. Part two of your of your presentation talks about uh, the dirty dozen of critics. Uh, so uh, let's just talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so I tried to figure out a way to just put a face to a name. So in, in the class, what I do is I ask the, the, the people that are participating to just write one through 12 on their papers. And, and as I describe each one of these critics, I ask them to kind of write, write someone that they know that meets this definition. So they can kind of, you know, put a, put a face with a name. And it's like the difference between theory and application, you know, you know, in academia, there's a lot of theory, but in the real world where we all live, it's, it's applying that theory and in, in, into, and in, into the real world. So we do that. And then one thing to note is as we go through this, uh, what I call the dirty dozen of critics is, uh, People can be more than one of these. So you can have someone that that criticizes you one way and that same person can criticize you another way, which they can be, you know, multiple of of these 12 uh, types of critics that I've come up with. And another thing to note is that this is not scientifically validated. This is nothing more than anecdotal evidence that that I have come up through my own personal research. So um, this has not been vetted. This has not been peer reviewed in any way. This is just the opinion of one person. 
Well, you say the opinion of one person, but I uh, going through this, I can tell you that we all know that it's the same titles in all the different firehouses. Like we always talk about all the time, it it doesn't matter what size of uh, department you come from and and what location you are, but we all deal with the kind of the same stuff. So uh, I'm excited about getting into the dirty dozen of critics that you have called out in this presentation, and I think a lot of people out there will really be able to connect. Sure. So the first one I talk about is is called the backstabber. And I start out with this one and I put a big danger on the slide is because the difference between this uh, critic versus the other 11 that we'll talk about is this person is actually dangerous. This this backstabber because they may you know be nice to your face, but behind you, they're really trying to destroy you, not necessarily just criticize what you do, but they're really trying to destroy your career. So if you if you have someone that's constantly criticizing what it is that you do specifically behind your back, a warning light should go off in your head that shouldn't make you think, you know what, this this is something that I need to to be paying real close attention to. And, and this is maybe goes beyond the pale of criticism. And I, I need to maybe take a little bit more of a defensive posture. So that one, while critical, very important, it's pretty common sense and, and to the point. So the the next one that I talk about really, and we've all we've all dealt with this critic, and that's called the jerk. And this person is rude, angry, and tries to make you feel bad about yourself whenever the opportunity arises. And I have come to find out that there are just some people in this world who are jerks. You know, they are truly the ugly side of humanity. And the the key to, to dealing with jerks is essentially that you just have to not give in to the hate. You, you can't listen to the negativity. You don't want to become part of the problem. And I think most importantly, realizing that the, the choice is yours every day, whether or not that you engage with that jerk. The biggest thing that they want is for you to argue with them or be dismissive and or they don't want you to be dismissive of them because they actually get their power from getting a rise out of you. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't cover the, the the jerk, but it's a new characteristic of that person with all the talk about post-traumatic stress and everything that we deal with in our industry nowadays is, you know, if you do have an employee who's actually been a good employee in the, in the past, but all of a sudden, you know, they've turned into a real jerk, that should be a clue for you as a supervisor that not to dismiss that person, that there may be something else going on. And that you should look into what's going on, maybe pull them in a room and say, hey, I've noticed, you know, a little bit of change. You're not acting like yourself. Are you OK? So there's a difference between a person that's just a jerk. They were born a jerk. They've been a jerk their whole life and they're going to retire a jerk versus someone who's got a, a pretty good track record. But now all of a sudden their behavior has changed. Now, the next one that I talk about is I, I define the, as the cheap seats critic and uh, I, I play a video at the end of this training that we won't be able to to do today, but I would like uh, for anyone listening to this podcast that would like to learn more uh, is, is by Brene Brown. And it's a talk that she gave and she talks about managing criticism. So if you just would go in and do an Internet search for Brene Brown and criticism, it'll come up as a video. But she talks about people in, in the cheap seats, you know, and, and at the beginning of this training, when we do it at the conference, uh, I play the man in the arena speech by Teddy Roosevelt, and it talks about um, it's not the critic who counts. It's the person who's actually in the arena getting their ass kicked, doing their job that, you know, who really matters. And if you want to be the person that sits in the cheap seats and just throw pot shots at the people actually out there working, doing the job, you know, getting their their ass kicked every day, then 
I'm in no way interested in your feedback. That's just how it is. If you want to come down and you want to offer constructive criticism and you want to, you know, talk about, hey, hey, chief, you know, I, I really think we should do this or, hey, you know, we're setting up this new truck we're buying. I, I think we're setting up a little bit wrong. Here's what I think would be a better idea. Absolutely. Bring that on. You know, I want that. I want that. That's what makes us better. You know, all of us are, are, are better when we work together and we're rowing the boat in the same direction. But if you just want to sit up in the stands and take pot shots at the people that are actually working, then I don't care about your feedback. Yeah, essentially just being, you know, part of the problem all the time with no solutions and not being able to put any work or want to put any work to actually solve the problem if that's what it is. They sit back there and they have all the things to say about all the work that's happened out there, but they never have any answers of how to fix it. It's just about, you know, creating another problem for another problem. Yeah, absolutely. And we've all dealt with that. And this is where I really delved into the research more is because We've all dealt with that kind of person who just wants to sit there and throw those pot shots and and we deal with them and we argue with them and we do whatever. So I wanted to kind of dig in is, you know, what is it that makes people that are just so dumb think that they're so smart? Because we've all worked with that person. And and what I found is there is a psychological thing. And again, you can um, if you want to do some more Internet research on yourself, if you type in the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is D-U-N-N-I-N-G-K-R-U-G-E-R effect. There is a ton of research on this. And and essentially what the Dunning-Kruger effect is, is it occurs when an incompetent person not only fails to realize that they're incompetent, but they consider themselves much more competent than everyone else. So basically they're too stupid to know that they're stupid. Once I kind of started digging into this and, and realizing that, holy cow, yeah, and I could start putting faces with with this psychological theory. And it was like, whoa, that 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 makes a lot of sense. And and really, as I delved into it more, I came across a graph that kind of it's it's goes two ways the upwards. It's it's confidence. And then long ways, it's it's wisdom. And sometimes as you start to learn a little bit about something, you really overinflate your knowledge of that because you used to not know anything. And then over a short period of time, you gain some knowledge and you feel like, wow, I know a lot. But what I find is, is, you know, probably just human nature. But, you know, we all work in the fire service. So I can speak to that is is we, we seem to be a lot of times an industry of people who they don't know what they don't know. And really, there's no way to know that because you don't know. Right. And, and what they call that in the Dunning Kruger effect is the peak of Mount Stupid. And what was most humbling for me as I started going through and learning more about this, this theory was that was me years ago. I remember early in my career, I was that jerk at the top of Mount Stupid screaming how dumb everybody else was. And I really, truly believed it. But as I progressed through my career and I, and I sought out higher education and I went to more trainings and I started talking to people that were a heck of a lot smarter than me, then what I did was I quickly fell down into what in the Dunning-Kruger effect is referred to as the valley of despair. And that's kind of when you fall down and you realize, wow, I am nowhere near as smart as I think I am. But the good news with that is that that you're not stuck there. The key to any any stuff like any 12 step program is, you know, the, the first step is admitting there's a problem. You know, hi, hi, my name is Steven. I'm an alcoholic kind of a thing is you admit there's a problem and then now you can start working your way out of it. And you can start climbing up what's called the slope of enlightenment. And the best way to do that is to just seek further education, seek further training, become part of associations where you can, you know, 
get uh, some some peers and some uh, mentors that can teach you, you know, what it is that you need to know. So over time, you can realize, okay, now, okay, now I do know what I'm talking about, but I still have room to learn. And the Dunning-Kruger, I'm just kind of just scratching the surface, but it does a really good job of explaining what that is. That reminds me of a uh, quote from Dr. David Griffin in his class where he says, the most dangerous person is a confident, incompetent person on the fire ground. Yeah, and that, that is that is directly from the Dunning-Kruger effect. So and he is so, so correct. And there's no one better. There's no one better to speak to that than him, for sure. But one thing that uh, came to my mind when you said that you were at some point in your career when you felt you were at the top of Mount Stupid and was the dumbest at that time, at something had to ch- something had to happen in your career that made you drop down to the valley of despair to be able to actually be opening up, whether that was that good leader that had an impact on you, an officer, something that happened within you to be able to get you to say, whoa maybe I don't know it all. You know, I did have that humbling experience and, and, you know, was there, was there anything specific that, uh, that was able to kind of, you were able to like flip the switch and say, Hey, we got to make some changes around here. Yeah. It's a couple things. It wasn't just like an epiphany. It wasn't like just one moment, but it was a couple things in line in about the same period of time. When I was at the top of Mount Stupid was probably about two to four years in my career. So, you know, I, re- I remember, and I try to remember now as a chief, of how dumb I really was on day one. I had a, a captain come up to me and drop a pair of, of bunker boots in front of me with a pair of bunker pants over top of him. He says, here, try these on. And I looked down and I didn't know whether I needed to take my shoes off to put my bunker boots on, or if I should leave my shoes on like my old rain boots when I was a kid. And I, that's how dumb I was when I started, right? Didn't know, even, didn't even know how to put on my bunker boots and pants. But after about two years, uh, I knew how to put on my bunker gear pretty well. And I'd been on a number of calls and I started to get a little bit more confident in my skills and abilities because I had been pretty successful in what it is that I had done. And then so right around the two to four year mark, I was was doing pretty well and in the department that I was, but I actually started pursuing uh, higher education. So I started going to college and was taking some classes and I began my bachelor's degree and was working on that. And then I also started working at a different fire department also. So I was part time where I am the chief today. And then I started working a little bit further south at the it was the Mason Deerfield Joint Fire District at the time. And I had realized that this this department was was quite a bit further ahead in times from the one that I was working for. And I started working for people who were a heck of a lot better firefighters and paramedics than I was. And it just kind of hit me between the the additional and, and, and this department was very progressive in training. So they not only trained on shift, but they would send you to all kinds of trainings and they really, hey, here's a training, go to it. So I started going to more trainings. So just basically exposure. And then I realized like it just kind of hit me about the four year mark. I, I, I fell down into that valley of despair. It's like, man, the more I'm learning, the more I'm realizing what I don't know. And then that hit me where like, I don't know what I don't know, but I do know that I don't know as much as I thought I did. And then that's when I started, okay, now I need to start learning more. That's so funny. So you probably see me smiling like crazy. And I know all the audience can, but I'm smiling like crazy because we talk about this in our fire station a lot about when you first start in the fire service year one, you really don't know anything and you're such a sponge. You, you, you can take all the information in, you want the information, but then between years two and four, you know it all. 
You are God's gift to firefighting and nobody can tell you anything until you get to about that four to five year mark that you either went on that call, something humbled you and you realize, I don't know what I don't know. And I need to read more. I need to train more. I need to educate more. And so that is a perfect example and kind of sounds like the exact same thing that you went through in your career. And, and, and many of us do. And I think that that's what it takes of where I call the immature firefighter to the mature firefighter. And when you become a mature firefighter, uh, uh, then you, you really begin to experience of what's the importance of, of the job and, and what we're here to do and why we're here to serve as our, uh, as a public servant. So, yeah and you know we in the class we talk about you know well what do you do with that person that's just stuck on the top of mount stupid that they refuse to go to training they refuse to learn that they you know they're they're not as good as they think they are and and i think the key is to just to try to drive them and push them to learn more i mean i really believe you you got to give them opportunities but you know you can buy them books you can send them to school but you can't make them learn that that they have to bring that to the table that's on them and and if they don't well then at that point you just you know you have to set the standard you have to set the expectation of the organization make sure that they meet that and if they do great if they don't well then at that point you know you got to coach them up or you got to coach them out because if, if they if they don't meet the minimum standard of the organization you know this job is way too important to not be good at it the next one so this is another one that um everyone's more than likely familiar with and this is what i call the tester and this is the person that just loves to push buttons around the fire station now there's different motives for this some people you know they're just trying to push your button because they kind of fall more in that little bit of a jerk category but they don't really mean a lot by it they're just pushing your buttons to just entertain themselves if you will but the other thing with that is is i do find this common amongst new officers where people are trying to test your metal they're trying to figure out, you know, how do you perform under stress and pressure? You know, a lot of times when you get promoted and you're a new officer, particularly, you might get moved shifts or stations and you may be working with a new crew. And while you built up a lot of esprit de corps with your previous shift or uh, crew, you may not have that with your current, but you may they may rely on your decision making ability to whether they live or die. So they are gonna to wanna to see, you know, what is it that you do when you're put under stress? So I think when someone's pushing your buttons, particularly as a new officer, is, you know, sometimes understand that, you know, they're just trying to test your metal. Now, you gotta draw a line, you can't let them, you know, you know take it too far, but, you know, they wanna see that you're not gonna freak out. One of the things that I give as a piece of advice in the class is I do have a, a history working in law enforcement. And one of the things in uh, police academy that they taught us was called verbal judo. And there's a number of different techniques that you can learn through using verbal judo. But the one that I learned that I use a lot is a way to deflect some type of criticism. And, and that is to just use the phrase that's very simply, I appreciate that, but... So, for example, if you have a, a person in your firehouse who's kind of poking at you, doing whatever, you know, you could say, yeah, I appreciate what you're saying, but listen, now's not the time or place to do that. We got to go do some training, you know, or, hey, I appreciate that, but I don't think that's necessarily the the way that you should be speaking to me. You know, I, I understand that you're, you're kind of testing me that I'm a new fire officer, but um, that type of behavior is not going to be tolerated. And, and instead of just getting mad and getting into an argument or to a fight and kind of bowing up and letting them know that you're the officer and you're in charge and they're going to respect your authority kind of a thing is you just simply look at them and say, I appreciate what you're saying, but that's not acceptable. And, and whatever form that you do with that. 
Well, I mean, if you react in that other way, then uh, then they got out of the view exactly what they were testing, right? You couldn't handle the stress of the situation, so you buckled, and you buckled with the, you know, response of, you know, blowing off the handle or getting, you know, in that case, it's not, you know, when we originally think about maybe how they get a handle at that structure fire, well, it's the same thing. I mean, it's just diff stress in different ways, maybe, and so how are you going to handle that stress at the station if they're just giving you a little test and, and to see in what, where they can push you and how far they can push you, because if you continue to allow it, then they, then they certainly will continue to test you. Yeah, you give them an inch, they'll take a mile. Yeah, that's right. So if if you have someone testing you and you overreact, whether they're whether they're just pushing your buttons for entertainment or they're really trying to test your metal, uh, they win. You don't, and that's not what you want to do as an as an officer, specifically as a new officer. That's that's the difference between why you're an officer and why they're still at the firefighter level or at the why they hadn't promoted yet in their part of the career because they just haven't learned those things of how to manage uh, other employees as that they're continuing to be the tester. But you're teaching them as the officer at that point, a young one, to teach them how to handle a situation because they're going to take that back and and they're going to realize, you know, well, that was a, a really a, a professional way of handling it and that you're holding a professional standard for your shift. And sometimes it's very hard because as we talked in the beginning of this uh, podcast, you talked a lot about being a part of the tribe or being a part of the group. And, and that individual that could be testing you could be the, say, the leader of those of your crew. You know, the one that's always around the kitchen table with them all while you're in your office working. So it's a really, a really touchy balance point of how you're going to handle that. Yeah, I do see that the the informal leader, if you will, of the group a lot of times is that tester. And when you're if, if they get you when you're in your office and they're in the bay floor, you know, they're going to be talking about how, you know, you see how I got the new lieutenant to do this and do that. And, you know, and you do see like you just kind of alluded to um, a, a lot of these testers are people who wanted to be promoted and didn't get promoted for whatever reason that is, which is actually a perfect segue kind of into our next critic and that's the lazy critic and these are the people that you know they they'd like to have what you've achieved but they're not willing to put in the work to get what it is that you achieved you know they they just see that that you're now a a, a lieutenant or a captain or a chief and they you know they see the iceberg floating above the water and that's what they want but they don't see underneath that iceberg you know the persistence the failure the sacrifice the good habits hard work and dedication that you've put into what it takes to actually get promoted. So, you know, while this is a, a pretty simple, you know, person, you know, that that lazy critic, you know, they are the ones that are going to be taking the pot shots at you. They are going to be the ones that want what you have, but just simply aren't willing to put in the work to do so. Yeah, and one thing cannot be trained is the work ethic. And one of the other things that you have on that on that slide that I really, really like is it states that sometimes people won't like you because they see you attain the success that they think they deserve from the work that they haven't done. And I, I mean, that hits that hits a lot because you do talk when you talked about that iceberg, you talk about so much work that goes into it. Nobody was there on the late nights when you were turning in the papers or reading the class, uh, reading whatever your class notes were or taking the tests that you had for those college courses or the getting getting involved, even when you didn't have time to get involved into those other things that were going to be part of the solution of all the problems that we have at the fire station that you continue to get involved and you continue to be that that positive 
positive person. But uh, one of the things we talk about a lot is that you cannot really teach or the uh, uh, work ethic or attitude. And, and both of those things are directly affected by that because if an individual has a good attitude, they want to invest in themselves and invest into others, then that's what's going to help make it more successful uh, as an organization as a whole. So lazy critic is a real good one. And I really, really like how you have that broken down for the explanation. Yeah. And the, ne the next slide on that, you know, as I, as I talk about, you know, there's two ways to make yourself look good person that is, is a good fire officer. They, they simply, they, they make themselves look good by doing good. You know, you do a good job, you work hard, you do everything that you just described. But the other way that people try to make themselves look good is by making the, those around them look bad or worse than them. They don't want to do any of the extra work. That leads into the next part of the lazy critic, because it kind of like we talked about the Dunning-Kruger effect earlier. It's like, how can someone be so dumb but think that they're so smart? Well, this kind of leads into another uh, psychological theory that's called the cognitive dissonance theory. And this is, have you ever wondered why people are lazy and they're not willing to do the work, but they expect to receive the, the rewards of someone who does the work. And that's another thing that I would suggest that if anybody wants to learn more is to just get on a, an internet search engine and type in cognitive dissonance theory. There's a ton of videos, a ton of, uh, of research in this area that you can learn more about. But I think the most, you know, the, the basic of it is it's just a mental conflict and it occurs when beliefs are contradicted by new information. This conflict activates areas of the brain involved in personal identity and emotional response to threats. The brain alarms go off when a person feels threatened on a deeply personal and emotional level, causing them to shut down and disregard any rational evidence that contradicts what they previously regarded as the truth. So basically, people just psychologically are, it's more comfortable for them to believe a reassuring lie than to listen to an inconvenient truth. So if you've ever sat down, and I'm going to guess just about every chief officer that's listening to this podcast or any company officer uh, has experienced where you sit down with an employee and you try to counsel them and you try to explain to them why it is that they're not doing so well. Whatever that is, you know, we don't have to use a specific example, but they're just not performing to a standard that they should be performing. And you're what doing what you believe to be a really good job of explaining to them. And they're not hearing a word you're saying. They're totally disregarding. I call them excuse machines. All they want to do is make excuse after excuse after excuse. And they want to defend their behavior versus acknowledge what it is that you're trying to tell them. And I've dealt with people like this, like like all of you have, and, and you feel like you're just beating your head against the brick wall. And as I delved into this theory, what I just came to the conclusion is if you truly have someone that suffers from cognitive dissonance, is there's nothing you can do for them. It's a, it's a truly a psychological problem that they have to deal with. You don't have the skills and abilities to get them to see it your way. So all you can do is establish the expectations, establish standards, and make sure that they meet those. And if they don't, then they can't work for you anymore. That's just really what it boils down to. Now, you can try to tell them, hey, I think you suffer from cognitive dissonance theory. That probably won't go real well, but that's about the only thing you can do. And then tell them you need to go get professional psychological help to, to make that happen. Now, your organization might be able to provide something like that. You know, we have EAP programs, we have things along those lines, but it it boils down to kind of what we talked about with the step one of every 12 step program. If you don't believe there's a problem, 
then you're not going to go get help because you don't think there's anything you need help for. But this is one of the most frustrating things that I've experienced in my career and talking to other officers, the most frustrating things that a lot of officers deal with. Yeah, I think we've all dealt with that immensely in our positions that we are as chief, not only in the fire department, but people out in the public as well. Yeah, and a phrase that I learned when when doing the research into this theory, and I and I use it a lot because it does kind of just if if maybe I can't help this person, that's one thing. But I still, as as the fire chief, need to wrap my brain around you know why it is that this person does what they do. And this phrase is that people judge themselves by their intentions, but others judge them by their actions. So when you have a talk with people that's got this issue is they'll sit there and tell you, well, I meant to do good. Well, I tried to do this. Well, I was going to do that. Or, well, I couldn't come and do this because I had to do that. Again, the excuse machine, like they are able to find a way to justify in their own minds why they were not successful. And then when you try to explain to them that being unsuccessful is not acceptable within the organization, they just can't understand because they had good intentions. But we don't pay people to come to work for for the fire department with good intentions. We pay them to come and perform and to do a job. And if they can't do that, well, then, like I said earlier, then they just cannot be allowed to work for the fire department. That's a great point. The very first thing that comes to my mind when he talks about this is uh, you'll appreciate this, Joel, is 100 zero. Uh, that's what we use all the time is 100% accountability with zero excuses. I mean, just take 100% responsibility for whatever that was, and you have zero excuses. And we we hang that up all over the fire station. And I get I I could think of uh, just off of the top of my head of of some in the past that are exactly that way that those excuse makers and the only way we're able to at least stop the sentence of the excuses was hold up that sign that said 100 zero. And if anybody's interested in what I'm talking about, you can go and search uh, 100 zero. There's a YouTube video out there that talks all about it and um, really good, uh, really good information on being able to kind of be 100% accountable with uh, zero excuses. And it, it's at least something that a statement that we could say like, Hey, it really has them like step back and, Oh, wow. I'm actually making excuses for all my actions when that wasn't the way it was. Cause if it was, you wouldn't be having to sit here making excuses. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, which kind of leads us into into the next critic, and and this is I define as the recliner sniper. Now I can't take credit for that name. Uh, I actually heard that at FDIC one year, and it was it was Anthony Castros who who used that term. And what he was describing is a naysayer, or what we maybe call a hater, and someone that you know no matter what you say, no matter what you do, they're just going to shoot it down. And what their motive is could be different. It could be because they're lazy. It be, could be because, hey, we've tried that before. It didn't work or or whatever it is. Or it's your idea, not theirs. You know, there's there's a lot of things there. But the way he describes it is it's a person that's sitting in a recliner and you walk into the day room and you're like, hey, I got this great idea. And they come up out of the recliner. They grab the rifle. They shoot it and go, Pow! that'll never work. And they sit down and pop back in the recliner and they go back to watching TV. And, you know, the, the thing about those naysayers is you kind of got to dig down into, OK, what is it that's causing them to to not want to try new things? You know, and if it's one of those that I said, if it's because it's your idea and not theirs is maybe you want to say instead of coming in and tell them you have this idea, maybe come in and tell them that you have a problem. Hey, I have this problem. And maybe in the back of your mind, you have a solution. But if you involve the crew kind of goes back to what we said earlier is. Is, you know, all of us together is much stronger and smarter than 
one of us individually or any of us individually. As you pull them out of the bay and say, hey, I've got this problem. What do you think we can do to solve it? And let them be part of the solution and share in the credit, you know, those kinds of things. And if it, if it's geared more towards like just the negative attitude or, you know, they're they're close to, to leaving the job and they just really don't want to do anything. Well, that is what that is. But again, you have to set the standard and make sure that they meet it. So the recliner sniper is, is kind of self-explanatory. So the next one is the gossip critic. And I know probably most people listening don't have any gossip at their fire stations because fire stations are not <laughs> notorious for, for gossip in any way, right? No, I mean, not at all. I yeah, remember yeah. back back uh, when I first became a volunteer in the fire department, I went home. I remember telling my wife, I said, wow, this is a, like it's a a bunch of grown men and it seems like a soap opera. It was just, you have this click over there and that click over there and there was gossip everywhere. So that was the, the welcoming to, you know, what it was in the fire service. So yes, it is everywhere. It doesn't matter where you're at. Right. And you kind, of, kind of thought you got out of junior high when you got out of junior high, but you're back in junior <laughs> high when you're going to fire service. But just a couple things with that. One, the, the thing about gossip is to truly understand that, you know, we talk about, you know, an organizational leadership and management uh, communication is always an extremely important thing, right? I mean, it's, even if you go down to looking at line of duty death reports, you know, there's there's not a line of duty death report out there that doesn't mention some form of poor communication or, or breakdown of communication in some way. So when there is gossip occurring, it's just really important to understand as an officer is that is a formal line of communication within the department. A lot of things go through the grapevine, what is, is referred to as. So understand that, you know, communication is happening through gossip. So that is something to just make sure that you are aware that that is occurring. Uh, what I have found is it, it seems like to me, a lot of people in the fire service that gossip, they're just the ones that are kind of into drama. And during the class, I asked everyone to 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 look at the name that they wrote next to their paper uh, of who they 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 wrote down as the gossip critic who likes the drama and how many of them really enjoyed sitting around the station and watching reality shows. And a lot of hands went up. And that again, that goes down. To, I don't have any research on this. This is just strictly anecdotal. But I have found that a lot of the people that I consider gossip critics are the ones who really like to watch those gossipy type shows. So that's just a little little side note. But the other point I wanted to talk about is not only is gossip important to understand as a law officer and understanding that it is a grapevine type of communication is really it, it's kind of common that most people do it. You know, a lot of times gossip is trying to just find out information. Is there something's going on in the organization and you're not real sure? So you'll kind of ask somebody something that you heard, have they heard the same thing? And that kind of goes around. And and sometimes that's people trying to figure out what's going on in the department because there isn't good formal communication occurring. So if you're an officer and there's a lot of gossip going on in your department, then that might be a clue to you to understand, okay, is there some things going on that I'm not communicating to the crews about? Because they do care. Now, of course, we all know there are times that there are things that are occurring, uh, specifically personnel issues and things that you just can't talk about. You know, that that's just, they all want to know, but it's none of their business. And that's just kind of how it goes sometimes. But a lot of times too, it's just kind of a firehouse therapist. You know, we talked earlier about, you know, that jerk or that, you know, dealing with post-traumatic stress is a lot of times people just gossip to get things off their chest and to just feel better. So if you hear gossip, try not to overreact to it, kind of like the, the person pushing your buttons earlier, uh, is, is try to kind of maybe figure, okay, if there's a lot of gossip going on, is it just firehouse gossip, which will always happen, 
or do you see an uptick? And then maybe you kind of need to dig in a little bit further, or maybe you don't see an uptick, but some of the gossip you're hearing is pretty bad, or it's something that you kind of need to address, you know, in a more formal setting. So the thing about the gossip critic is just to understand that it's not just people talking behind your back always. Sometimes it's just, you know, it could be a number of other things. Next one is the dinosaur critic. And this is the one, you know, the the person that a lot of times they want to talk about, you know, the the best accomplishment that they've had is I've been here for 24 years or I've been in this apartment for 32 years and I'm this and I'm that. And um, while I have a ton of respect for people who have a lot of experience doing this job, you know, there's a lot more to experience than just coming to work every third day or coming to work and and doing, you know, and just riding a recliner all day. You know, it, we know that we know we have people on the job that have 20 years of experience and we know that we have people on the job that have one year of experience 20 times in a row. And there's a there's a big difference. And so the dinosaur critic I'm speaking of is more that person who has one year of experience 20 times in a row. If you go and you talk to them about spraying water through the window from the outside, they'll argue with you and say, oh, no, you're going to burn the whole house down because you're going to push the fire because they haven't been anywhere near the NIST studies or any of, of that kind of stuff going on nowadays because they learned in their TNI class back in 1981 that you can't do that. So those people you need to be careful. And when you start exposing your newer generation firefighters to those people is you really have to be careful because the a lot of times because of that experience, that young firefighter will just go to them because they seem to have a, a real strong opinion. But unlike that Dunning-Kruger person that's kind of at the mouth stupid where the young firefighter will learn pretty quick that this this person's an idiot, is these more seasoned guys can really start to corrupt your young force. And it kind of goes back to that phrase is, you know, be careful of dinosaurs because dinosaurs lay eggs. That's what could be happening in your organization. So when you look at, you know, personnel matchups and things along those lines is, is you know, you need to be real careful with how you manage these people. And, and sometimes, you know, sitting down with them and saying, hey, you know, instead of just complaining about what everybody else is doing, how about you try to involve yourself and try to get them more involved in the organization? Because typically, if they've been there a long time, they do care. I mean, they wouldn't stay employed and they wouldn't be working there and they you know, wouldn't come into work if they didn't at least care somewhat. Um, but you can't let them be what I call as rods, which is retired on duty. You can't just sit there and say, oh, well, this guy's got two more years to go. I'm not going to hold him accountable. I'm not going to do anything to this guy because he's going to be he's not going to be a problem anymore in two years. But what's happening is that he's laying eggs and the newer firefighters are seeing you tolerate that behavior. And one of my favorite phrases is, you know, nothing can destroy morale of a good employee is to watch you tolerate the behavior of a bad one. And, you know, so that's the, if you, if you've got a dinosaur critic, you, you got to handle it. You got to take care of business. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I do think the same thing, the uh, you know, if you tolerate it, everybody else in the organization is, is seeing that it's not going unseen. It's not going that, how can you expect to hold a standard with all the other employees? But that rod uh, that we talk about is just continuing to lay eggs because they are around it all the time. And just 
you know, they're testing you in many ways and pushing you in many ways. And, and, uh, how much are we willing to tolerate or be able to stand up to it just because, and then even in this case, yeah, they probably cared at one point and maybe something happened along the way that they're to the point of where they're going to be retiring. Uh, but have to really have that direct conversation with them to understand of what kind of legacy do they really want to leave? Because, you know, like we talk about a lot of times, even when doing performance evaluations and things that you gotta, you gotta collect the information for the entire year. You can't sit down at the end of the year, do a performance evaluation. And now you've only remembered the last three months. And so for an individual that's been that dinosaur critic for a long time, and you're talking, they're been on the job for 23 years, have two years left. Do you really want to go out like this? Because all these other great things you did along the way in that, in that first 23 years of your job, wouldn't you want to be remembered for all those things that you did rather than the last two years where you were playing recliner sniper, or you were being the, you were over in the cheap seats or you were trying to motivate the younger individuals uh, because they were of a different generation of that nature that you didn't agree with, or, you know, things of that nature. Do you want to go out that way or do you want to go out the other way? And, and I think that that would be the, the only way of maybe potentially being able to help change that for the last couple of years. Yeah, and, and that that's great. And the other thing that I want to point out with the dinosaur is, you know, a lot of times that those dinosaurs, you, you worked with them back in your younger days. And the, the other point about the dinosaurs to point out is you've probably done some things with them early in your career that you as a as a now officer or chief would write yourself up over. You know, and, and a lot of times those dinosaur critics, they're going to try to throw that in your face. You know, they're going to try to use that against you. And the slide that I put in in the presentation says just because you did something wrong in the past doesn't mean you can't advocate against it now. It doesn't make you a hypocrite. You grew. Don't let people use your past to invalidate your current mindset. It's called growth. It's a concept. Embrace it. And that's something that I've I've personally struggled with because God knows I made a lot of uh, dumb decisions young in my career and did some things that uh, if back then I knew I would get caught for, I would be wrote up for. And now you have to set a standard. And I think the important thing is if you have someone who is what we call the dinosaur critic and he's criticizing you because they're calling you a hypocrite because you kind of did the same thing, that's hard to deal with because and um, you, you do feel guilty for that because you're like, yeah, the difference between this person and me is they got caught and I didn't. But now you're in a different position and you have to hold them accountable. And it's it's again, it's called growth. It's not being a hypocrite. It's just doing your job because you knew back when you did it, if you got caught, you were going to be held accountable. I absolutely love that. Uh, so it was the first time I ever read that or seen that and put it away. But I've heard that term so many times that, you know, uh, we worked with those dinosaurs. We did those same things and we we had those same experiences, but we may have not have gotten caught. But if we would have, we would have got uh, uh, held accountable, meaning we would have been wrote up or whatever the case may have been at that time. Uh, but to put it in a, or to spin it in such a positive direction this way to say, yeah, we did do that. But we didn't always and we don't still today do that. We did grow out of that. And it's just growth. And I thought that when I read that, I just thought that that was just such spot on and something that I'm definitely going to take back to our firehouse to to teach to our officers about those things, because I think that's a huge impact on them as well, that at some point in our career, when you talked about that, you know, from that one to five, we wanted to be a part of the team. We wanted to be, you know, 
everybody to like us. We wanted to be surviving in that tribe and, uh, and, and be out there that everybody was going to, uh, not throw us to the wolves as well. And so it, some of those times were peer pressure in the firehouse of those actions that we took. So to really uh, know now that it was all a part of the growth in my career of where it is today, that really hit home for me. So I, I thought that was a great, great slide. So we'll move to the next one. And this one's pretty short and sweet. It's, it's called the opposite of you critic. And I, I titled it that because I think that most people that come to the conference or most people that are listening to this podcast and stuff are probably hard chargers, people with growth mindset looking to better themselves. They're not the ones sitting around the firehouse being recliner snipers and such. So one of the things I talk about and that is that if you have someone who has just a terrible mindset and they 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 won't train, they don't want to be a leader, they don't care, they say they tell you I won't love the job and you can't make me um, no, you can't make them love the job, but again, you can hold them accountable. And one of the things that you can do and use them to your advantage while you're holding them accountable to do the job is I mentioned earlier, if you wanted to pitch an idea and they want to just be a naysayer and shoot down your idea, um, those are the naysayers and, and the recliner snipers that we handle one way. Well, the way I kind of look at the opposite of you critic or the one that's just negative about everything and has a totally different mindset about the job than you do is if you have an idea and you present it to them and they hate it, then you know it's a good idea. Very. True. Yeah, I mean, it, it is. And it's one of the, you have those people in your firehouse who don't love the job and don't care. And they're just there to collect a paycheck and they do the bare minimum. And I, I kind of realized I, I used to try to cater to those people because I found out a lot of times they were the people that had a number of years on the job and um, they weren't real pleased with whatever it was, the direction the department was headed for whatever reason. But once I kind of grew as an officer, I realized that those aren't the people that I need to worry about. I need to disregard those people. So if I'm hearing criticism from them, I know I'm doing good and we need to keep pushing forward. So, so the next one is, uh, and we've kind of already talked about this a little bit uh, when we discussed the peak amount stupid and, and that's the 222. And this is the person that I define as two years on the job but they think they have 22 years of experience. And I learned this phrase back when I did work down at the Mason Deerfield Fire Department that I talked about earlier. And uh, it was very common because we had a lot of people at that department who were just like me that I described earlier, because it was a, it was a part-time department, one of the few departments in the county that actually paid people to work part-time. So a lot of people that just had a couple few years on the job went there to work. So I was surrounded by 222s. And that kind of helped, as you mentioned earlier, kind of progress my growth because I sort of realized like, wow, you know, we don't necessarily know uh, what we don't know. And I have a, a picture on the side of Beavis and Butthead because that reminds me a lot of my friends that I worked with down there, uh, me being one of those Beavis and Buttheads. Uh, but the other picture that I have on there, it says, if you don't do stupid things while you're young, you have nothing to smile about when you get old. And the point of that is that when we're young, we all do stupid things. Because I can say when I was young and dumb, I was really young and dumb, really dumb emphasis. And the difference between the Dunning-Kruger effect that we talked about earlier and the 222 is these people are still young. They still stand a chance. You can get them training. You can get them education. You can do things for them to get them to fall into the valley of despair and then grow over the next 20 to 20 years of their of their career to actually start learning. The ones that are 
22 years on the job and they're still stuck at the top of Mount Stupid, that's not what I'm referring to here. And those are the ones that you really can't do a whole lot other than just try to give them training opportunities. So the next critic is the keyboard commando. And this is one that really is more pointed specifically at chief officers, uh, because this is the, the group that I've dealt with more. While any firefighter can be put on social media and made to look stupid and criticized and all of that, a lot of that's just dumb and it's easy to overlook. But I have some friends who are chiefs and they had went through some levy campaigns. I myself was a chief who went through a levy campaign, a couple of them. And when you ask people for more money or you're trying to raise people's taxes, they really become hypercritical. Not all, but some become very hypercritical, specifically where we're located in the state of Ohio. Um, our county is one of the few counties where uh, issue two or Senate Bill five back in the day, it actually passed. So we have a very conservative uh, group of people in our area. So when you're trying to raise taxes, Man, they come out in droves and they do everything in the world to to try to discredit you. And they're those cheap seat critics sitting on their, you know, and, and they're actually they're in their mom's basement typing on their computer. You know, they do the best you can to not read that stuff. That stuff is is toxic. And um, it when I read it years ago, it really affect I, I found it affecting me when I talked to my chief friends who have read that stuff. Uh, it really affects them. It, it it absolutely does. And there's nothing you can do about it. But what I have found is the best way to combat this is to make sure that there's someone that you know that you can really trust who is reading that information, who maybe doesn't have a personal attachment to it. And if there is something that's being said out there, they'll get a hold of you and say, hey, listen, this is something you need to respond to. That way you don't have to worry about it. It's not in the back of your, you know, it's not even in the back of your mind. You're not even worried about it because you know someone has that under control and you don't have to expose yourself to that toxicity that is really going to mess with you uh, mentally for sure. Yeah. That's great advice. Um, <clears throat> that is really great advice just to have somebody kind of monitoring it and, uh, and like, Hey chief, this, this would be one that I think we do got to address. I, I think that it really went either well below the belt or, or something that's just being completely untrue that I think would regard uh, or require a statement from you to just kind of correct this, especially when you're talking about those, you know, like a, in a, in this case, a, a levy campaign. But, but if you became so involved in reading every single one of those comments, yeah, I, I, it could really kind of emotionally hit us because again, as you talked about earlier, we always want to be part of the, you know, part of the group and we, we want everybody to like us and we want to be there. And, and when you're hearing all those negative comments, that, that would weigh on you quite a bit. So that's great advice. Yeah, I really I listened to Joe Rogan's podcast and he he's described this the best of anybody I've ever heard. It. And he, he says that that uh, social media is like processed food for the mind. Like you you eat processed food and how bad it is for your body. If you if you watch that documentary about uh, McDonald's supersize me and you see how he goes to the doctor and they're saying this food is, is literally killing you. It's terrible for you is processed food is really bad for your body and social media is processed information and it's really bad for your mind. You know, so try to, you know, at least if you can't avoid it, just know what it is going into it and try to figure out a way to supplement your mental diet with some vitamins and, and athletic greens and stuff along those lines to, to at least keep yourself healthy if you have to. I always think that people on uh, when you're behind a computer, your fingers say a lot more than your mouth. So I like this comment on here or your picture on here where it says 
you know, on the internet, I'm kind of a big deal, and it's got the keyboard commando yeah. sitting there. Yeah, it's amazing what people will say to you when they know you can't punch them in the mouth. <laughs> it, it, it really is true. <laughs> yeah, very true. Not that I'm condoning violence in any way, but. Well, no, I mean, it just gives them this, you know, and, and it is, you're right, with social media and the way that it's easy to, you know, we, we don't know what they're going through on their end of the keyboard, you know, emotionally or what's affecting them and a way for them to be able to vent may be a way of attacking somebody else. Um, and and so sometimes I just look at those situations of, you know, that uh, maybe they're not happy in, in their own lives or what they got going on that uh, they got to try to bring out, bring somebody else down because um, they're not seeing the successes that they that they see you having, but they wish they did. So uh, not to try to buy into it too much, not to emotionally respond to it. And I think that that's the best advice of why you have that one person that can you could really trust monitor that social media uh, so you don't become emotionally attached where you almost become biased and making decisions that you most likely wouldn't make that same decision if you didn't know all those informations because you want to say that you could read it and not let it affect you but ultimately you know that's not true we know that that is not true if we read it it's going to affect us and it may make us make decisions down the road that would be you know bias in nature of whatever that information was that was stuck in the back of our mind because they really got that you know push that button on that one yeah, absolutely. And then the last critic that I have is yourself. Um, and a lot of times people that are very proud of what they do, you know, we can be our own worst enemies and we can get into our own heads. And the the two slides that I have up here, one of them says, make sure your worst enemy is not living between your own two ears is, is the first piece of advice. And then the second one is don't take yourself so seriously. No one else does. And, and that's the thing is when you, you care so much about the job and you're so passionate about what you do, you really start to take yourself too seriously. But, you know, while the job we do is very important, you know, it's what we do. It's not who we are. And we shouldn't be tied to our profession as our identity. You are who you are as a person. And then you are a fire chief or a chief officer or a fire officer. And that is your job try the best to keep those separated as far as being too hard on yourself. Do you find yourself uh, managing those employees that um, as a chief, and I'm asking you as a chief, um, do you find yourself like managing those employees that you know are really hard on themselves a little different than the ones that are maybe on the top of Mount Stupid and the dumbest because they think they already know it all? Uh, do, you, do you see yourself respond to them differently or treat them just a little bit differently when it does come to that they did something wrong or whatever because you know that they're holding themselves accountable at night yeah and, and i look at it kind of from a from a strategic point is you know the most limited resource that we have is time you know no matter what we do we cannot buy more time so we have to be very diligent especially as a fire chief and where we allocate that time and to what resource we do so. So if you have someone that you know is on the top of Mount Stupid is you still wanna give them resources and you wanna to try to help them, but they really kind of have to find themselves. So it's like, you can give them trainings, you can give them stuff. Here's what you need to do. You need to go do this, but you don't spend a whole lot of time on them. You just point them in the right direction and hopefully they will, they will travel that path. But the ones who are a little bit harder on themselves that take a little bit more pride in the job or going that little extra mile, you know, those are the ones that you really want to devote a lot of time and energy and effort into. 
And you want to you want to take and know that that you know they're they're ultimately the future of the organization more more than likely. And and those are the ones that you do want to spend more time on. One, for the health and the sake of the organization moving forward, and two, for the health and the sake of that person. Is you want to have these conversations that we're having right now with them and say, hey, don't take yourself too seriously, dude. It's 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 no big deal. If that if if what you just did was the worst thing that happens today. Uh, then, then it's a good day, and uh, and actually we'll we'll talk a little bit here um, when I in, when we move on to the sturdy dozen uh, ways to manage criticism on on how I do that actually. So I don't want to get too far ahead of myself because I might screw this up. Thank you for listening to this Triple P podcast, part one of the Officer's Guide to Managing Criticism by Chief Steve Agenbrode. Tune in next month for part two. Thank you for tuning in to the Triple P Podcast, premier, professional, and proactive, brought to you by the Ohio Fire Chiefs Association. If you'd like to hear more, follow us on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever you get your podcast. And if you feel so inclined, please help us spread the word by telling your fire and EMS friends about this channel. Chief O'Brien has been serving the fire and EMS community since 2005 with the support from his wife, Bobby, son, Ashton, and daughter, Aislinn. Chief O'Brien began as a volunteer and worked his way up to the rank of fire chief in 2015. He began his full-time career with the city of Faustoria in 2008 and moved to the city of Napoleon in 2009, where he has been a fire chief since 2015. Chief O'Brien is a progressive servant leader. He is committed to improving the fire service through developing young men and women into becoming leaders in the fire service. You will often hear Chief O'Brien ask his staff and others he encounters in the profession, what are you doing today to make the fire service better than it was yesterday. He's extremely passionate about training in all disciplines and is enormously proud of bringing a state-of-the-art training facility to the city of Napoleon. Chief O'Brien holds an associate's degree in fire science and a bachelor's degree in business administration. He is a nationally registered paramedic, firefighter two, fire inspector, hazmat technician, and FIRE, EMS, ACLS, and PALS, as well as a CPR instructor. Chief O'Brien is an active member with the Henry County Fire Chiefs, Northwest Ohio Chiefs, the Ohio Fire Chiefs, and the International Association of Fire Chiefs. He participates weekly with the Napoleon Rotary Club, sits on the Substance Misuse and Community Partnerships Committees, and is on the Executive Board for the LEPC. Joel Fry is the Assistant Fire Chief for Napoleon Fire and Rescue in the city of Napoleon, Ohio. He has been in the fire service for 13 years. Joel has obtained an associate's degree in fire science and a bachelor's degree in fire administration. Joel is a nationally certified paramedic, firefighter two, fire instructor, EMS CE instructor, CPR instructor, hazmat technician, and fire safety inspector. Joel heads up the Prevention Public Education Division and works to create strong relationships throughout the community in which he serves. Joel has a wonderful wife, Katie, and four young boys at home. He is a member of the Ohio Fire Chiefs Association, the OFCA Education Committee, Northwest Ohio Fire Chiefs Association, the Northwest Ohio Fire Prevention Association, the Henry County Fire Chiefs Association, and the treasurer of the Henry County Firemen's Association Training Commission.